Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right, welcome to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. The topic that we are discussing today is navigating provider wait lists. And understand when you're listening to this podcast, we're gonna talk about kind of the way things were pre-COVID and then kind of trends that we're seeing now during COVID because I think it's kind of an interesting um, kind of transition to the pre-COVID and post-COVID. So we'll talk about that towards the end. Uh, One of my guests today is Shelby. She's been on several other, numerous other podcasts. And um, you and I were just talking before I hit the record button that this is actually fairly, I mean, relatively recent for you guys because you've been on your autism journey now for a couple of years, right? Yes. So my daughter, Kira, is five and a half. She'll be six in December. And she was diagnosed um, around three, so she was she was three years old um, in the spring when she was after she's turned three, not very long after she turned three. Um, so yes, yeah, so I guess it's we're on our two year, two and a half year uh, journey. <laughs> yeah. Now I remember originally, so you guys actually had concerns, and so you were the ones that were pursuing an evaluation. Versus sometimes what happens, what I see is. We have um, parents who are suspecting, you guys have multiple children. So this wasn't, she was your youngest of, of um, four, correct? Oh, youngest of three. So there's kind of two things that I see happen. One is, is that, you know, parents have concerns and so they bring it up to a provider and they make the recommendation to have an evaluation. The other thing that I see is, is that children go in for well-child visits. Um, and during those well-child visits, providers are, are trained to look for and ask certain questions at different um, milestones, at different well-child visits. And the whole point of that is that they're trying to identify kids that are not meeting some of those milestones so that that way they can be evaluated early and plugged into early interventions because we know that the sooner we can get them into interventions, the better prognosis there is. And so The third option I see, um, which always makes my heart hurt a little bit more, is that kids start school and then teachers are seeing, you know, people within the school are noticing um, concerns. And so then that becomes a little bit more touchy. And so when they academically start falling behind or they have behaviors that are impacting their ability to be successful in the classroom, then there's that discussion about doing an assessment, um, putting a behavior intervention plan, different things like that in there. And so sometimes that is ends up being kind of that aha moment for parents that, oh, wow, maybe we actually have something to be concerned about. So those are kind of, you know, when I'm putting on my Isaac Foundation hat, that's kind of the three scenarios that I end up usually seeing just um, at the Isaac Foundation. And so Chevy, you guys actually were concerned. And so that was how you guys started the ball rolling, correct? Correct. So Kira was typically developing up until a year she was meeting all of those regular milestones you would up to a year. She was already starting to use a little bit of speech, walking, all of the things she should be doing. But we noticed a big regression around 18 months. So we were getting less speech, more behaviors, and like big behaviors, like big, big tantrums and things like that. Um, so I actually approached our pediatrician and said, hey, like, 
we have concerns about where she's at at this point. Like, I feel like she should be talking more. Like, this is not our first rodeo. We have two boys and I, I almost a hundred percent that they were definitely talking more at this point. And we kind of got that typical, you know what? She's the third child. She has siblings who are talking for her. Like she'll catch up. Like I wouldn't be too concerned with it at this point. So I kind of got told like, don't worry about it. She'll get there. <laughs> so I got that advice, um, which I was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, we'll just go with that for a little bit. Um, I, that got me to about, uh, till she actually reached two. And then we were getting like massive behaviors and even talking less. And she was like baby talking more than she was like actually trying to use her words. Like she kind of was before. And so I actually approached my work because my job actually had a developmental screening because I work for a kind of a childbirth education uh, organization that also did developmental screening. So we got her done a neutral screening. So it wasn't through our doctor and that provider actually picked up on lots of red flags that came with communication. Um, and she actually referred to us uh, for early intervention. So that's how we got started on that journey was through early intervention. And so we had a speech therapist and an OT uh, come to our house for a brief period of time. And then we started seeing um, more of those kind of, I guess, typical autistic uh, kind of features. She started, you know, headbanging and things like that. And I think it was just because we now had a person in our home demanding things from her, which we have not, we didn't have that before where she didn't have like all these demands because we didn't really know how to deal with her. So when she has like, you know, somebody that's made to kind of work with kids for speech and she was demanding her to, you know, use her words to get something like bubbles, which she didn't have to do before. She's like, well, before you just do the bubbles. So why are you making me do things now for that? She did not appreciate that demand. And then we started seeing like the head banging and things like that. And that provider was like, uh, yeah, this is not like super neurotypical, <laughs> like child behavior. Like this is something I think you need to kind of look at further with a provider. So I guess that's what kind of got our, the wheels turning that like, okay, this is something more than just a speech delay. Cause that's what we kept getting told is like, oh, this is just like a speech delay. Mm-hmm. So your first provider interaction was with the speech therapist initially, correct? Yes. Yep. So now, and so at this point, she was two? She was, I guess, technically, yeah, she probably was two, about two, two and a half. Okay. So this is a really good point. So I'm glad we actually got to this point because one of the things that um, I like families to understand is, is that when a child is under the age of three, um, they are eligible for what's called the infant toddler network. Um, So they are eligible to receive services through the zero to three infant toddler network. And um, that, again, it's a program specifically designed for getting kids that are not meeting those milestones that are having delays um, into early intervention services. And so when you have a child that's that young and you're then connecting with like a speech therapist, because believe it or not, that's usually the very first thing that um, kind of puts kids into early intervention is that their um, their language is, is not um, where their peers are. And so that's oftentimes an eligibility criteria that's met so that they can access speech therapy. And it's something to note that um, wait lists for kids um, in that zero to three age range is like lickety split. There is a priority placed over all other ages um, when you're talking about zero to three. 
to get kids seen because again, their brains are very like plastic still. And so you can make a lot of progress in a very short period of time. So it's really, it's a great window. Now I'm going to just put a little asterisk here and say that that does not mean that there's not wonderful progress that happens even after three, but from a science perspective, they really do try to hit things hard with real intense services between zero to three. And because they see this as being like a real critical window, the reimbursement reimbursement rate for providers to see a child between the age of zero and three is the highest. It's almost their full rate, their full, it's not their full, you know, so keep in mind that like a speech therapist may charge $130 an hour or for a 30 minute session. Um, and so the reimbursement rate for those kids that are in that zero to three um, window is actually much higher. It might be 120 or 115, which is actually really, really, really good, right? Because then after that, for a child that's outside that window of that zero to three. So a child that's three and older, um, now it's it's not through that infant toddler network. And so the reimbursement rate drops down to maybe it's like $90 a session or $80 a session. So I want to make sure too that families understand that um, a lot of times, like here in Spokane, there are some centers that specifically cater to children that are zero to three. So in Spokane, you know, we have several. And understand that when you see a provider, a provider provider will automatically say, oh, I'm going to refer you to such and such clinic. And that's great. And that's fine. But understand that parents have choices. And again, um, when your child is zero to three, you get your, you have, you pretty much have your choice because again, wait, they're a top priority for prior providers to accept and get into their program. So you can be selective about where you want to go. You don't have to just sign up for the first one that your provider um, says, you know, so if I go to my pediatrician and they say, oh yeah, we have concerns. Um, we're going to go ahead and put in a referral for speech therapy and I'm going to send it here. You have the right as a parent to say, you know, um, I did my research or I feel I want to do my research a little bit and see what our options are. Um, it can be decisions based on proximity to your home so that you don't have have to drive and commute as much. Um, you might want to choose one that has like kind of a, a preschool component where they're actually going and interacting with other kids versus just going and getting speech therapy. So you have lots of different options. And I really encourage families that if your kid was in that zero to three window, Go ahead and take that referral, but don't be afraid to call back your provider, um, your pediatrician and say, hey, you know, I did my research and I called around and I talked to other parents and I would really like you to put in a referral to this location. And um, again, you know, you have that ability in that zero to three window to be particular. And I think you should. Um, and, and ask friends, ask people, um, go online and just, you know, see what people have to say about those different centers. So you don't have to just go with pediatricians and doctors love to just refer to their comfort zone and you don't have to accept that. And so I just want to make sure that we cover that. So Chevy, back to your story. Um, you guys got plugged in for speech therapy. Was it just a speech therapy where she was just going and getting speech therapy services or was there a preschool component or a program element of it? No, it was actually, so the way the community program was set up, uh, it was a speech therapist actually coming to our home. So we, we did not, we did not have the preschool element because it was just her coming to our home. I wouldn't say it was super successful, but it was nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> Why wasn't it successful for this woman? Because every time she came, I'm pretty sure Kara had a meltdown. So she probably was like dreading coming to our house weekly, but <laughs> yeah. well, and for Kara's like, for, you know, to, in her defense, there was this woman showing up and all of a sudden she's placing all of these demands on her and communication is hard. So yeah. I'm going to give Kira a pass on that because I probably, I, I understand that, you know. Um, but we had this kind of weird window, I think, because she was on that 
almost three cusps. So we literally started services like three months before she turned three, which was a very interesting time to start things because they literally just started. And then they were like, and now we're transitioning to like, you're working with the school district because she's going to be three. So no longer our job. Now it's their job. So it's like we got started, you know, so (laughs) barely routine. And then they were like, and now we're moving on to these people are going to be your people now. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know about you, but Isaac was in the zero to three infant toddler network. And I felt really um, abandoned because um, number one, I'm getting the, Hey, we're transitioning into the school district and this becomes their realm. And this was like, Oh my gosh, like you've heard just all these nightmares about working with the school district and how they only will do the bare minimum to help your child. Cause these are some of those stigmas that we hear in the special needs world. I don't know about you, um, Chevy, but I felt very abandoned because here, you know, we were making some progress and, you know, then all of a sudden it's kind of like, and you're no longer our problem. And so that's exactly how that felt. It was like, yep, not our job anymore. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> yes. Let, let us help you with these transition papers and come up with a nice transition plan so that then the school district is going to have to deal with this. And then it just, I don't know, I didn't love that process. And I, you know, it's, I'm sure that there are some families that had a really great transition experience, but um, just from my perspective, I felt very abandoned. And also it's learning a whole new system and it's a big system. And again, um, you know, one of my complaints with like all the school districts is that they're really not very good. Um, they give you a booklet of here's your rights because you have a child with special education and you have to read all that fine print and it's very convoluted. It's very unclear. And so you don't know what to ask for and what you're entitled to, even though if you read this booklet, it says, you know, your child is is entitled to a free and appropriate education in the least restricted environment. Okay, so what does that mean exactly? Is what I it's break that down for me. Um, so I, I don't know. I just I felt very abandoned and it was just very overwhelming and I didn't know even where to start trying to figure that out. So how did they transition you then for speech when you made your transition? So they got us connected with the school district. We did the transition paperwork. Um, and at the time we were actually planning a move. So that's even an, another fun transition. Um, but they basically, we filled out all the paperwork and then they said, you know, when the school year starts, this is going to be where you're going to go and all that. Um, but we were actually moving from the West side to Spokane. So they kind of quickly went, oh, actually, we're now we're going to move this all to Spokane. <laughs> so they yeah. will make a plan for you. It's like but, a hot potato, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And I think what I, I, I definitely was not prepared for like, you know, the seven person meeting, you know, type setup where you go from just like meeting with a provider one-on-one with early intervention. And then all of a sudden I meet with a school district and I'm in a room with like at least six, you know, six to eight people um, who have different roles. And that was definitely overwhelming. Just not knowing that's what that environment was like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so walked into that and then, you know, they're doing their tests to see, you know, where she's at and, they're asking her to do something different every two minutes. They're trying to move her through activities and you have a child that does not transition very well. So that was just a really fun experience of her having a meltdown in front of like eight people. Um, so. <laughs> maybe actually good. I mean, you know, it's not awesome, but maybe helpful in terms of yeah. them being a good picture. And actually it's, it's like, this is interesting because our providers where we came from in Marysville, they actually, I actually asked about autism. I was starting to read kind of different things and I actually asked about autism. I said, you know, Hey, do you think, do you think that these could be like autism signs? And they actually told me, you know what? Nope, definitely not autism because she's, she is social 
and she's been looking at us in the eye. So yeah, definitely don't think autism is direction you should be looking at. That is, those, those words right there are some of my biggest triggers and I lose my temper with people <laughs> when I hear that because you are in these fields and you obviously are undereducated when it talk, when you're, we're talking about the spectrum and it just bothers me. The other thing too, I'm going to also make a statement here. One of my also big rubs is, is that I firmly believe that girls are underdiagnosed compared to boys and understand that the reason why that is, and I'm not the only one that believes this, there is actually um, universities that are actually doing research on this, but you know, you're taking, um, you know, autism primarily has affected boys through history, right? Through time. And so all of the criteria and screening criteria and, you know, um, observations are based off of boys, not females. And so I think it's really frustrating because what I see happening is it's a lot harder for parents to actually um, be validated when they have concerns for their daughters when they're little, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then also, so a lot of these girls, they can, you know, they can mask their symptoms or their challenges more so than boys. And so they can go longer before, you know, it starts becoming too difficult for them to mask it. And then we start having some other issues going on. And so it's so infuriating to me when I hear providers, people that are kind of in this world that are saying, oh, well, she makes eye contact and she's social. Well, girls, a newsflash, I, I don't think anybody listening would disagree that men's communication and women's communication are a bit different, right? We're over communicators like all the time. So again, it's not surprising to me that she's social because again, women tend to be more social than men. So you know, again, you hit one of my trigger points. So I, I apologize for going on my soapbox, but it just really bothers me. So I believe that we're going to see in the next like um, two to three years, like a specific set of criteria criteria for screening girls and a specific criteria for screening boys, because I think that we are doing a disservice to the girls. So anyway, you then started making your transition. So you had concerns once again, you're poo-pooed. Yep. And so So we, we moved to Spokane. We met with the school district when we got over here. Um, they said, you know, oh, we know that Marysville kind of set up a beginning of an IEP, but actually we need to do our own because we're a different district. So now we need to do our own IEP, which I was like, great, we get to do paperwork again because <laughs> it was just, we just got done with our first book and now we're on to our second book of paperwork. <laughs> yeah. But actually I, their setup was great. She went to Central Valley Early Learning Center and it was a preschool set it, set up for her developmental preschool. And I actually felt like between Marysville School District and Spokane, Spokane's actually made the process, I felt, a lot easier for us. They were a lot more organized. Way to go, and Spokane. We were, really, we were really happy with it. Um, and then within uh, two months of her starting at the preschool, they were like, yeah, so we're going to be transitioning her to another classroom. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And they were like, yeah, so like those students all around the spectrum. And we just really feel like she would be a better fit in that environment. And I'm like, so are you saying she's on the spectrum? And they're like, well, we can't say that because we're not doctors, but we will just say a lot of her behavior all lines up with all the other students. So that's all we can really so, okay, Sheva, you are exactly, you're talking, your experience is exactly what I'm speaking to, where it's that awkward situation where now they're entering a preschool, and then those teachers are saying, well, we can't diagnose them, we're just saying we see red flags, and you know, so that's the, and I didn't even know that, but actually, 
to my point, I, I'm right. Cause that's exactly what happened. So yeah. And her teacher was like, yeah, so I've been working with autistic kids for, you know, 13 years and I actually had autistic brothers just growing up and she's a lot like all of them, but I can't say anything. <laughs> yes. Isn't that funny where it's like, but I'm not allowed to tell, like say anything about it, but I, they're doing all the yeah. wink, 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 nudge, nudge, elbow, elbow, like, you know what I mean? It was exactly like that. It's like, please don't tell anybody I told you this, but yeah, no, totally. <laughs> no, isn't that just, it's just kind of a messed up. Yeah. God forbid that, you know, yeah. Anyway. So yes, that is exactly what I see happening a lot. And so that was when you guys pursued an evaluation. And that was the first time you started figuring out that wait lists are a bugger, right? Yes. Yes. So we actually, we had, Shakira actually had two different diagnoses, um, both confirming autism. We had kind of a, I felt like a more basic diagnosis where we did a questionnaire with her pediatrician in, in Spokane. And um, they did like an hour, you know, questionnaire and they were like, okay, she's ticking all the boxes. So, yep, we're saying she's autistic. So, so, you know, there you go. There's our, your, there's your diagnosis. And for me, I was like, with something that's this, I felt complex. I felt an hour's questionnaire (laughs) was just not enough for me as a parent. Like, I'm like, that's really great. But like, I need more (laughs) than just like a questionnaire to like, for sure know that she has this. So she got that initial diagnosis. um, And we were referred to a couple providers. And actually, the providers that they referred us to both had such extensive wait lists that I actually had to start doing research because it wasn't just that like I wanted to do research. I, it just wasn't an option because the two, two providers they referred to were like, Oh yeah, we're, we're on like a year's wait list. Yeah. And I was like, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I'm going to, I'm going to pause you there because I want to talk about the difference between what the two type of assessments that you have, because, um, and that's when I talk to families, I'm always like, okay, so what is your end game? Like, what is your need here? Because if you just need the diagnosis, so then that way it unlocks insurance, uh, you know, access to insurance, um, or, you know, you have to then provide it to the school so that that way they see autism as a qualifying diagnosis in order to be able to qualify for an IEP, which even then, um, if your child's not delayed academically and is, doesn't have behaviors in the classroom, even then an IEP may not be appropriate for your kiddo. So there's an ADOS assessment, which is the autism diagnostic observation study. So that is exactly what you're talking about. That is just a lot of questionnaires. Um, and then they meet with the kiddo you know, usually in the span of like you coming in. So most of the time you're filling out the long, it's like an hour questionnaire. You're right. Like and each parent fills it out independently or should the right way is that both parents would fill it out. If if you had a daycare provider that's with them all day long, or if they're have a teacher that they're with, like you would ask them to fill out like the teacher version of that. And then you take all of that information to your sit down with your, your pediatrician or whoever it has to be a pediatrician or a doctor that is um, a center of excellence provider, meaning that they've actually received extra training and how to screen for autism. Um, but then that's when largely their diagnosis is based off of the information, the scoring of those questionnaires. Okay. Now, Chevy, you mentioned that you 
it was like, okay, so we have a diagnosis. This actually is good for being able to like, oh, okay, we have an official diagnosis. Now we can ask for different types of therapies, but you didn't feel comfortable with it because you wanted something that was just more meat under, you wanted to understand what was going inside of her head a little bit more. And so that's more of that neuropsych assessment. Um, so that's where you're going and they're actually doing, it's, it's a screening. It's a lot of questionnaires, but they're actually going to go through and they're going to do like a language segment where they're actually doing like speech communication there, you know, there's some executive function. There's all those, there's like about seven or eight or even 10 sub tests that they're doing in order to see what her development is in a variety of different areas. And so that's called like a neuropsych assessment. And those are great um, because then when you start accessing other types of providers, or then you're going to the school to build her an IEP, you actually know what her strengths are and where her biggest deficits are. So then you can start actually make better decisions in terms of, okay, it makes sense because her behaviors, when she's asked to do something that's hard, she starts melting down and she melts down for 25 minutes and can't re-regulate, la, 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 la. So that then starts giving providers and teachers information to be able to build a really good plan for her to be successful. So that's with providers and that's even with teachers. So that's kind of the difference between the two. Now, um, can you operate with just an ADOS assessment and a diagnosis from uh, like, that's the, I call it the quick and dirty is what I call it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that are just like, yeah, I'm good with that because the school does its own evaluation, which is a neuropsych evaluation that has all those subsets too. Um, and that's good too. And I actually will tell you with Caleb, um, the school district did their evaluation and I was having challenges with that particular school district. So I decided to pay to have one done independently. And I was actually pleasantly surprised that they were very similar. Okay. So, um, you know, Caleb's actually uh, um, going in today for his uh, three-year reval with his school district. And I feel comfortable now enough with their screening and their assessment process that I'm not going to pursue an outside evaluation on my own because it cost me like six or $700 um, because our insurance didn't pay for it. So anyway, so back to Chevy with what you were saying is when you were trying to get, so it was easy to get your pediatrician or your center of excellence, like pediatrician to meet with you to give just the thumbs up. Yep she meets the criteria. But when you went to try and get a neuropsych assessment with some of these other clinics, it was like a year wait list. And that was when you were like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So then you started doing more research. Yes. Yes. And actually we started with, um, we started with, because I, of course, when we were in Marysville, I asked that autism question, you know, to those providers in, or sorry, to those teachers in Marysville. So I actually was researching autism Seattle, because that's where we were at the time before we moved. And uh, what I found was, you know, Northwest, or sorry, not Northwest, but um, Seattle Children's, they have autism, they do like an autism diagnosis there. So I was like, okay, they're probably the first line of, you know, who we want to talk to. And I called them and said, hey, like, we really want to get our daughter in for an assessment just to see if this is even something we should be looking at. And they said, Oh yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, we have an 18 month wait list. And I was like, how is this possible? <laughs> Cause I was like, everything I've read so far says early intervention, early as possible, soon as possible. Like you should be doing services yesterday. So I was really like confused as to why this was such an extensive wait list. And I, and they said, do you want us to still put her name down? And I was like, 
Sure. <laughs> why not? Like, why not? I hope we can do better than that, but just in case we can't, I should take the 18 month appointment. Yes. And then of course we moved in that time frame um, over to um the Spokane. So then I think uh, maybe one time in that process, we got a call about like, oh, we had a cancellation. So can you come in tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, that would be great. Except for we're like 300 plus miles away. So that might be a little tricky for tomorrow. And they were like, oh yeah, you don't live local anymore. Yeah. You're really going to get put lower on the list because now we need people that are like next door to like our center. Those are going to be the priority people. So I'm pretty sure we got even put lower on that list admitting that we did not live locally anymore. Yeah. Um, and actually just, I think like three months ago, we actually got a call from them saying, Hey, Kira's next. She's on the list. Let's get her booked in. It's time. And I was like, that's great. She's had a diagnosis for over a year and had been in full-time therapy, about 40 hours worth of therapy every week for over a year now. So I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this calling. is comical. <laughs> it's nice that other waitlist process, actually, you still did in fact have a waitlist. Cause I will tell you sometimes it's like, oh, it's an 18 month wait. It's an 18 month waitlist. We'll put your name down. And then I envision them actually just like putting it in the, in the recycle bin. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like <laughs> the, fake, the fake tapping noise. like <laughs> Exactly. So that's actually encouraging that they did actually call you a year and a half later saying, Hey, good news. You're next. They did. <laughs> Trying to find a provider here in town, was it, did you have to call several and get on wait lists or did you just call one? I did call several. Um, and I was starting to get frustrated because everybody I talked to was like, oh, wait list, wait list, wait list, wait list. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is like really a thing where like everybody has a wait list. And I think in that time frame, I had had my first mom's night with you. So I'd actually talked to you and a couple of the moms and everyone's like, oh, just get on like all the wait lists, just even if it's crazy long, just get on the list. Cause like, you never know that something could come up. So I was just like, okay. So I literally was going down my list and just calling everyone and put her name put in and hoping for the best. Right. And so then, and then you got a call from one of the providers saying we can get her. Yes. Yes. So actually we had a couple. Um, so we had one provider we met with Unfortunately, we we started seeing like there was a red flag kind of feeling, I guess, when we met her. And we had actually a lot of people go, Me, you might want to shop around. So like just <laughs> just just like make sure you meet with everyone first before you jump into like the first provider, especially if you don't have that a great connection feeling like when you meet them. And then we had another provider, I think it was Northwest Autism. And I was excited because I was like, oh, their program looks really great. Our only hang up with that was that they had a, you know, a limited amount of time. They have their like, I think it's like 42 day kind of setup where they will work with them for a limited period of time. So with that, I was excited to to look into that, but I was a little concerned about well, it's such a temporary setup and I have a child that's like transition. Yeah, exactly. I have a child who really, I mean, even today, like we're two and a half years in her new teacher's like, yep, yeah, transition's definitely something that we're focusing on because she just has a very hard time with it. So I was nervous about setting up a routine for her and she's extremely routine. Um, and then being like, oh, and now we're done. So it's like, that's just like for my child personally, I know that's extremely hard for her. So I was like, you know, looks like a great option, but if there ends up being an option that is not so temporary, I would pursue that. So it, within that kind of time frame. We're meeting with North, Northwest. We met with them. We were at like paperwork point, And then I got a call from 
uh, SOAR behavioral therapy talking about um, ABA therapy services. And that's when um, we said, you know what, um, we're only going to choose to go with SOAR just because this is something that can be long-term and not be such a temporary setup. And that was for ABA. Um, as far as like diagnosis, that's what you're trying to, to try to figure out. Um, we talked to ICARD um, because they were the ones that had a similar setup to Seattle Children's. I was looking for criteria that had a similar testing structure. I kind of wanted something similar. I didn't want that very brief you know, testing we got with her pediatrician. So because it lined up with Seattle's, I was like, well, that would be something great to pursue. And even with them, when we first contacted them, they, in their paperwork that we got for them, it said, oh, anticipate nine months minimum, if not more to get in. But I think because Kara was right on that cusp of three, kind of what you said is those children get the priority. They called us right away and we're like, hey, she's three. She's on her younger end. And we probably took, prioritize our younger clients. So we'll see her in two weeks. And I was just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, you are the first person I have talked to that's not told us that this would be a very extensive wait. So that I was surprised. I'm like I'm psychic. It's almost like I know this stuff. It's like these little <laughs> like gems of knowledge. The younger they are, the more of a priority it is. It's just shocking, isn't it? So she started with the ABA and you were really lucky again because she is very young. So when you call the different ABA providers, you had a pretty positive um response in terms of you had three that almost immediately could have taken her in because of her age, correct? Right, right. Which I was actually surprised by as well, because all I kept hearing and seeing was these wait lists, but then I was getting calls, um, which probably because of insurance, like you mentioned, is probably why not because we're special, but, <laughs> um, but, we're but I will, I will say with sore, um, I did have to squeaky wheel that a little bit just because we had initially been told by, I felt like their gatekeeper, right? They're like front desk person, like, no, we have a long wait, um, about a year. And while we were talking to Northwest, I actually emailed the director and said, hey, like, just so you know, we, we really would like to see you because we've heard great things. We know that you have a, like an, a, you know, a continuous program. And if anything comes up, like, please just like, let us know. And within that kind of couple week period, I think we got an email back from the director, like the same week we met with Northwest. And I was like, really? <laughs> he actually responded to my email. And it was like one of those just like, you know, there's probably no point, but I'm going to just, why not? And I think that's a really got a response. Point, Debbie, is, is that you think that, oh, well, if the wait list is so long, I'm one of probably a thousand people that are contacting them, but it doesn't hurt to send that email. Um, it doesn't hurt to make that phone call. And I also, I really encourage people, you know, call around, get on the wait list, you know, go online and you can fill out the little, the email things that you can say, Hey, I'm interested in services, blah, 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 blah. Here's the age of my child. And don't be afraid to do a follow-up email or do a follow-up phone call. Because again, those people that are like taking those steps to check in with them. The other thing too is, again, I, I'm always skeptical of these wait lists. You know what I mean? It's like, can I, I mean, I don't want to see the wait list, but I just want you to prove to me that you have a wait list. Do you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, when you have a wait list, it's a year long or 18 months long. It's like, how in the world do you even manage something that long? I mean, you've got to have hundreds of people on that list. And so um, being calling um, or emailing periodically just to follow up to make sure you're still on on their radar, I think is really important because people make mistakes. Um, you get like a new front end person and maybe their system is different or things don't get transferred over. So I think it is really, really important 
for people to know that that's a thing, just following up and just, you know, shooting them a quick email, whether it's, you know, maybe every two weeks or once a month, um, don't be afraid to do that. And also um, for Chevy, you mentioned that you feel like her age was a factor because again, they do place priority over the younger kids, you know, because, you know, the earlier they can start working with a kid, the better the prognosis. However, when you're talking about kids that are older, Another set of like priority status, if you will, are the kiddos or the young people that are having severe behavior. Um, and so be honest. Um, you know, I'm not asking you to lie or like, you know, um, you know, don't lie. You want to be on to honest and be able to give them exact information, but just being really honest about extreme behaviors. Here's exactly what's going on. Here's the problem. Like we're getting to a point where it's becoming a safety issue with them and their siblings. If you can get a teacher to like, also just give you something that's just, you know, like, um, that's an observation, what the teachers are seeing at school. And then if you can also just say, you know, here's what the teachers are telling us is going on at school. Like we need help that matters. Um, because you know, when you have that many people that are trying to get in, they're taking the younger kids and then those that are having extreme challenges and we're having to start looking at, you know, medicating them, you know, and, or potentially finding other home placements because it does become, you know, a risk to, you know, family and other family members within the home. So that's another little strategy too, for navigating some of those wait lists. Now, Chevy, you also, um, with Kira have occupational therapy. Does she see an occupational therapist too? So I want to make sure we talk about that one too, because the speech therapy, I feel like there's the wait lists are much, you know, understand for a speech therapy appointment, they're 30 minutes. So speech therapists can actually have a lot more kids on their caseload than an occupational therapist. Cause those visits are 50 minutes. And also kind of a sidebar to that is, is that, um, occupational therapy services is very, very, very difficult to be able to qualify for at your school district. So most of the families that I'm working with, because the criteria is so narrow for those school districts to be able to then say, oh, yep, they do. They are eligible. It's just so tiny that, you know, uh, you really, most families are having to access private occupational therapy. And I believe you know, there was a point where occupational therapy and ABA, their wait lists were about the same. It was like 12 to 18 months. It's very difficult to get outside occupational therapy because there's just not enough providers in our community for the need and the number of kids that need it. And so what was your experience, Chevy, when you went to pursue occupational therapy? So um, I actually got information about occupational therapy actually from one of your mom's nights. So I was talking to some of your moms and they were like, hey, like, you need to get plugged in with ABA. You need to get plugged in with speech. You need to get plugged in with OT. So we had initially started, I felt like we got in pretty quickly with a occupational therapy office initially, but we didn't feel like it was a wonderful fit as a family. Like we just didn't love that setup, for that particular provider. We were getting lots of behaviors uh, during her kind of sessions. And it was a practice that was very, I felt overwhelmed to like, they always seemed like they had tons of people there and they were very in and out. So we started that, but I didn't love it. So I actually wanted to pursue looking at other occupational therapy offices. And so I got the name for milestones. People were like, yeah, they're great. They're wonderful. 
you should get plugged in with them. Again, they were another provider that said, we have a very long wait list, um, probably around a year, you know, but if anything comes up, we'll like let you know. And I think that because, you know, I kept checking in and calling, we ended up on an odd week where they were like, hey, we had a cancellation. So maybe you should just come in for an evaluation just to see like where she's even at to see if she would even be someone we would work with because we, you know, want to see where she's at. And then we were able to kind of get in through that avenue. Um, so now here's the, one of the things, and I think you touched on it where you, did you keep your OT sessions with the other provider while you were looking at another placement or did you exit OT and then just waited until something else came up? Yeah, no, we, uh, we kept plugging away at it, um, until she had, at least her evaluation with milestones. Cause I was just, I think I was nervous because of all these wait lists. I was like, you know, they aren't the best, but like we might, you know, something is better than nothing. So, yes. you know, we kind of were at that point of just like, you know, I'd rather, you know, you know, cause it was South Hill. We live in Liberty Lake. It was a provider that was always super busy and I had to bring my older children with me. It was just like not a wonderful fit for us at the time. Yeah. But even, even that being said, that was better than, no support. So yeah, we definitely waited until we had other support before we moved over. Yeah. So that's a really, Chevy, you're doing a great job at hitting all of my (laughs) little points. I wanted to make sure that I inserted in this particular podcast is um, understand that when you start with a provider, um, sometimes we are just so grateful to have a spot because like, oh my gosh, like a clinic called and we're going to start there. Um, Things that I see is that it's a long commute. And so families accept those spots because they're so desperate for services. They're going to take it and they're going to drive these long distances so that they can access services. Um, Sometimes you had kind of the double whammy. You had the transportation factor, but then it just really wasn't a comfortable fit. It just didn't jive. And your mom intuition was just kind of like, oh, I just, I don't know about this. And so that's where I want families to know that there is no harm you know, you got to do you and you can't worry about feelings. You got to just make sure that you're picking providers that are a good fit for your family, for the commute and that work well for your child. And so do not at all feel bad about looking at your other options because the other thing too is is that um, it's like we're all unique people. So the different skills and abilities of all these different providers are slightly different. So you might have one provider that's really well-versed in like sensory processing dysfunction, um, but that may not be something that a different provider as, as dialed in and as progressive or really does a lot of focus on that in their sessions. And so um, I love exactly what you did. You keep that session because at least it's services and you're making some progress, but you're putting your options out there and you're getting on other wait lists on places where number one, you've heard good things about it because you've talked to other parents Two, it's in a location where it's convenient for you because there is no shame in that. Um, when you have I mean, we have a lot that we're dealing with. And so if you can pick a clinic that has just a better commute and it's just easier for you to access, then do it. And don't feel guilty about that. And then the other thing too, is if it's just not working, you know, I do tell some families, if it's not working and it's horrible and it's meltdowns or you just dread going, then, hey, that's a situation where maybe taking a break, if they're doing more harm or it's more traumatic for your family to get to those sessions and access those sessions, um, then the benefit you're getting out of it, then take a break from occupational therapy and then just be persistent about checking on those wait lists to try and get on with another clinic. Another thing that I've seen is um, we have a lot of clinics that actually have multiple modalities within the same center. And so what I do find is once you get in maybe for speech therapy, 
they're more likely to then, um, because you're already receiving services within the practice. So that could potentially move you up on the wait list for like occupational therapy or other services within the practice because you're already there getting services. And so you're already established. They already have your information in the computer for billing. Um, And so that is another thing to consider too, is when you're looking at you know, these centers that have multiple modalities, if you can get in with speech and you know you're going to want occupational therapy, it's a good strategy to consider um, that, you know, you might, your wait list might be less than if you were to go to a totally different clinic to get occupational therapy or physical therapy or something like that. Does that sound about accurate, Chevy? Yes. No, that's that you brought up a good point because we actually do speech with them as well. So we do speech and OT and she has sessions that overlap each other. So we're there you know, cause we do drive out from Liberty Lake to, you know, closer to downtown second Avenue, which, but for us, her being able to do, you know, a occupational and speech therapy back to back, we have an hour, almost an hour and a half that's set just for those two services. That makes it like more than worth it for us to go out there. Yeah. And I think if it was just speech, it was the 25 minutes. It's like, well, my commute's as long as her session. So I don't know if that would be the best fit, but the fact that we can overlap that definitely has, has added that benefit for us. Yeah. And two, you know, also you can actually get some co-treating going on too. So you can have some of your speech goals um, being worked on during occupational therapy because they have access to those information. And so it's a lot easier for them to collaborate and have access to the information that they need so that they can be working on multiple sets of goals. The one thing I want to talk about now, if we can make a transition and Chevy, I'm going to kind of go off on my soapbox again, because there was, I had a list of things I want to make sure that we covered when we're talking about wait lists. It's so interesting how things cycle is that, you know, ABA, there's not been enough ABA providers um, for the number of kids that we have um, prior to COVID. And so um, one of uh, some other strategies I've told families is that, um, again, be very honest about the behaviors and the challenges that you're having and let those providers know when you are on those wait lists. They have a good understanding of what those, um, you know, what you're dealing with, because that does impact wait lists and kind of like, you know, escalate certain things because when they see certain types of challenges, you know, that can move you up in terms of placement. But the other thing that I told family is prior to COVID, you know, look at what's going on in school. So if your child is school age and they're really struggling with school because they have behaviors, school's really frustrated, um, you don't feel like you're getting the support that you need, or, you know, the team needs help from a BCBA to come up with some, you know, like a plan to help that student be successful. One consideration to consider is pulling your child because every every family would prefer to have ABA services after school, right? So they go to school, they do what they need to do. Um, Then you're accessing all of your therapies after they're released from school for the day. Now understand this is pre-COVID. Um, so one of the things is that, you know, there, those after school sessions are ridiculously difficult to get because, and those wait lists for those after school sessions, if you let them know that, Hey, it has to be after three 30, because I can't get them to you. Um, or we're not home until three 30, um, Monday through Friday, then that means that there's like just fewer appointments, um, that you're eligible for. So that wait list is going to automatically be longer. Um, but I really, prior to COVID was really having families really ask themselves those that tough question of how much is my child actually getting from being in school, especially if they've got behaviors um, and challenges that are not really like getting handled. Um, does it make sense to consider pulling your child out of school early 
um, so that that way maybe um, you might be able to work on some of those challenges and um, be able to make some progress. And so I've always told families that if you're willing to pull your child out of school, um, you know, for like, you know, one day a week or two days a week for a 30 minute speech therapy appointment midday, because that's a priority to you, consider that, you know, maybe that's time well spent or going in late to school on a couple days a week so that you can do speech or OT before you go to school. And again, because it's therapeutic in nature, it is still education, right? It might not be the ABCs or, you know, like, you know, learning, you know, adding, subtracting and multiplying, but it's still, there's value to that. And so um, believe me when I tell you that you have the right to pull your child out of school to access those services. And a lot of times the school's going to be very supportive of it, especially if that means that, you know, they're meeting with an ABA provider because they're trying to work on some really um, challenging behaviors that are also impacting their ability to be successful in the classroom. So now with that being said, we had COVID happened. And so um, prior to COVID, our wait list for ABA, you know, not so much with speech. I feel like speech is waitlist is actually pretty manageable, but again, they can see a lot more kids. Occupational therapy is very challenging. ABA is very challenging. And um, prior to COVID, it wouldn't at all surprise me that it was a nine to 12 or even an 18 month wait list. And then COVID happened and all of a sudden now we're all at home. So guess what? We're not limited by our school schedule anymore, right? And so also we're seeing a huge influx of behaviors, especially in the ABA world, because kids' routines and structure and all of the things that they, all their activities are basically taken away and the things that they enjoy doing are gone. So now we're seeing an increase in behavior. Well, once things became open and so providers could come back into the home, I'm, I started seeing an interesting trend more and more kids were actually getting worked through that wait list. And so some families are still doing telemed um, where they're doing it remotely. And so they're really working on a lot of these. They, they're using the strategies that their behavior techs are, are teaching them and they're doing it remotely. But what's interesting is, is that because during the shutdown, we weren't limited by a school day, we could get providers in the home during the day where they would normally have been in school. So all of a sudden we went from having these big long wait lists to a lot of these ABA centers started getting caught up. So the wait list was maybe just three months or whatnot. And so here's the weirdest thing. I have had um, two different providers or clinics contact me from out of Washington and they wanted, I don't know, I guess a local provider that gave them our contact information because we're in the know because we work with a lot of families just, and they are clinics that are thinking about expanding their ABA practice to Spokane's market. And they wanted to understand kind of some of the challenges that um, we, Isaac Foundation, believes there are in Spokane when it comes to applied behavioral analysis. And this is, um, it was interesting because it um, took, so a lot of them, I told them, hey, call around and find, if you want to know what the wait lists are, call around and talk to the different providers. What they found was is that there was only one clinic in Spokane that actually had a wait list. And it was like a two-year wait list. And believe it or not, it was sore. And everyone else, it was either, hey, yeah, we can start the process right now, or it might take us like one to three months just to work through the evaluation and the insurance like component of it. But there is really no wait list now because we've just kind of seen this, you know, like the shift of um, we can create more flexibility within our day. And so I think that's really interesting. But when they asked me what I believed one of the biggest areas that is not being met when we're talking about ABA here in Spokane 
my feedback to them was clinics that are willing to work with older kids. Because exactly what we talked to earlier, and Chevy, you're a great testament to this, is that your daughter was young. And so you really were surprised to find out how fast she actually made it through some of these wait lists. And that's the problem that I have seen just for years is that, you know, if you have an older child, like in high school, and all of a sudden, you know, like puberty is hit or a life, major life transition has happened, and we've got major behaviors, finding an ABA center that's willing to take on a kiddo that's in high school was very, very difficult um, because really the focus is on the younger kids. And some of it is, is that I don't know that many of them have experience working with older kids. And so it feels like it's outside of their area of expertise. And so they're uncomfortable taking on those older kids. But I feel like that is a real travesty, I guess, for our community, because, you know, we saw this specifically during COVID is, is that those were the kids that were struggling the most because, you know, for all these years, they've been able to count on that structure of school. And then it was taken away and now they're stuck at home and they can't do the things that they wanted. And there was fewer providers that were willing to take on those older kids or felt like they had the skills to be able to take them on. I've been pleasantly surprised because, you know, um, a lot of families were just saying, hey, we're in crisis and this is what this is looking like. And so I've seen a lot of those families actually work through those wait lists faster, kind of like our little guys, right? Which is really encouraging to me. But my feedback were to those two um, clinics that we're talking about expanding to the Spokane market was that, you know, if you really want to focus on an area that is underserved, I believe my heart believes that it's really on those older kids where they need services, they need some community engagement practice, some transitioning into like, you know, life skills and, you know, job assistance and, you know, some, some real uh, a program built around those elements. And we need more support like that. Chevy, I'm going to circle back to you. Is there anything about, uh, we talked about a lot today and you were so great because I told you that I was probably going to go off on a few tangents because I wanted to make sure that I talked to some of the, the things that just with the experience that I had at the Isaac Foundation that we covered so that was included. Is there anything else about just navigating those provider wait lists that you feel like we left out or we didn't touch on? No, I think you did a really great job of kind of explain it all. Um, your explanation about pulling out, actually, we are currently doing because Kira's school district is in person um, just for special services. And they actually just started kindergarten just this week. So we'll see how that goes um, <laughs> in person. But um, we actually have modified her schedule to uh, meet our therapy needs. So she actually only does half days at kindergarten with her special services team. And, and then she does ABA in the mornings and then we make speech and OT happen like in that morning slot as well. So she, we've kind of made that work for us. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with what you said. You kind of have to just make it work for your family because, you know, because of COVID we were in school in March and then we had this big long break. And then, you know, they were trying to figure out if anyone was even going to come back in the building and they decided, okay, only special services. So they contacted us and then they said, yeah, so we will see her next week because that's how close they left it to actually let us know if she was actually coming in or not because they didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see her next week, Monday through Friday, 9.15 to 3.30. See you then. And I was like, that's all of her services, <laughs> A. Yeah. B, yeah. she doesn't know you. This is a new building, new new teachers. And C, like, she, we cannot throw that huge of a transition at her in such a short space of time without like reversing a lot of gains that she's made over this summer. So we kind of had to say, you know what, that's great, but no thanks. We're actually going to do it like this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually did a meeting prior to the start of school 
Um, and I met with, again, that was one of those like 10 person socially distanced meetings where I've been sitting in a giant circle with masks on. But yeah. um, we just basically said like, that's wonderful, but that does not work for our family. So this is what, what we need. And we were able to come in and come up with that schedule for her. And actually the funny thing was, is her teacher said, yeah, so she's one of five in the building. And actually all of them are doing services. So we actually don't have anybody coming in in the morning. So we're thinking about moving our schedule around. So we're hitting all of those core things in the afternoon when they're there because yeah, actually yeah. they're not there right now. So actually we're, we're, you know, we're not, obviously we're not, we're in the same boat as everybody else where we're trying to just make this work for our kids around the crazy COVID and just like everything else that's going on. And on top of it, in case the schools do move back to a fairly a fully virtual setting because of COVID, you know, that could happen. I don't want to give up precious therapy spots and time. It's so hard to get them, right? Yes. I mean, she's been working with people for over a year that she's bonded with, and I don't want to take those, that work and then just say, oh, here's school. (laughs) Have all that time from us. But yeah, no, I I agree. Just making it work for your family. And yeah, and just because the expectation is that kids go to school from 830 in the morning until up to three o'clock in the afternoon or even 330, depending on um, the age range, that doesn't mean that you have to be on the most traveled path. Like you can do the path that makes sense for your family. And I think that's kind of where, um, you know, sometimes it feels like you're just like, you're going rogue. It's like, oh man, we're just like going, you know, like outside of the box, but believe it or not, there's a lot of us that are doing it. It's just that, you know, we're, you know, we only see this much of, we don't see what everybody else is. So I really highly recommend to, you, you've alluded to it a couple of times, it's get connected to a good mom's group. Um, you can find them online. Isaac um, Foundation has um, a monthly virtual session. And then we also have one in person with social distancing in place. And then there's a lot of virtual um, like Facebook uh, private groups for families that have special needs kiddos. And it's a great place to you know, ask those types of questions. And, um, you know, and that's the thing is, is that you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so just talking to other parents and having some just comfort and knowing it's like, oh, hey, I'm not the only parent that's choosing to not put the kid into school until the afternoon, because it just makes better sense for um, your you know, your situation. So, all right. Well, thank you, Chevy, for joining me. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.